0: Hi everyone, my name is Ivy, and I'm a member of Sanctuary Down City. Today we're going to be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Hey everyone. Hey everyone. So, just the other day, my seven-year-old comes downstairs in the morning to tell us that our four-year-old had climbed into her bed last night. Now, this, in general, is a fairly normal thing. We love that they love sleeping in the same room together. They have bunk beds. We love that they love sleeping in the same bed together. It's the cutest thing in the world. But throughout the school week, we try to give some nights where we encourage them, slash, Command them to sleep in separate beds so everybody gets a better night's sleep. Anyway, we had asked our four year old the previous night to stay in her bed and she disobeyed, climbed into that top bunk, and woke up her daughter, her, uh, her sister Harper, uh, very early in the morning. So uh, I go to like sit my four year old down and say, hey, we're not gonna be able to, um, you're not gonna be able to sleep in Harper's bed tonight. Uh, And maybe the next couple nights, because we asked you not to do this, and you did it. Simple, like disciplinary action, just explaining to her why she wasn't going to get to these next few nights. Well, my daughter likes to turn everything into, my four-year-old, into a big catastrophe. And so she just looks me in the eye and goes, so I can never sleep in her bed again. And just screams this on the verge of tears. I'm like, no, I am not saying that. And so I begin to kind of talk her down and explain like why she is in, you know, in trouble and why there are consequences for what she did. She then turns again with even more volume and more tears and just goes, dad, I do everything wrong. Now, any parents out there know at this moment you just stop in your tracks and you go, I need to address this, right? Because this, this passing, like highly emotional idea that just ran through her head might be something that actually over a long period of time can actually begin to take root if it's not like systematically addressed. What we believe about our identity and calling like what we believe about who we are and what we're like supposed to do in the world, they have all sorts of ramifications for who we become and who we don't. And things like that can, can, can be a seed uh, to produce all sorts of, of, of weeds, of bad fruit, of unhealth in our life. One of the key tasks if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're an apprentice of Jesus, one of the key tasks in your life is to continue to discover who God has made you to be and what you're being invited to do. And one of the most important things we need to bring our attention to if we're going to play the long game is we have to get clarity. And we have to get clarity like year after year. This isn't just like a thing you explore at 18 or at 23 or at midlife. We have to keep getting clarity and discovering who are we becoming. Self-awareness is something that the church has talked about for centuries. Uh, Augustine wrote, How can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Maestro Eckhart said, No one can know God who does not first know himself. Uh, Dominican uh, scholar St. Catherine said, when we, who, um, when we are who we are called to be, we will set the world ablaze. Uh, the fifth, uh, 15th century Spanish mystic St. Teresa of Avila said, almost all problems, almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. And just in case you think like quoting, you know, ancient Catholic uh, mystics like doesn't like build the case enough for you. You have John Calvin who writes, Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But these are connected together by many ties. It's not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth and gives birth to the other. Thomas Merton uh, writes, For me to be a saint means to be myself. Therefore, the problem of sanctity and salvation is in fact the problem of finding out who I am and discovering my true self. My point is that so many teachers of the way of Jesus have said that self-awareness is a key, a key to being, uh, to being a disciple. Like how many leaders... Um, public figures, pastors, maybe it's like couples that you know, like who have just fallen apart because they didn't know their own inner beauty and their own inner brokenness. Like they imploded like a father wound caught up with someone years later. How many parents do you know? Maybe it's your own. They just didn't have any sense of who they were and what they were called to be about, and it just leaked unhealth onto you. My point simply is our self-awareness or our lack thereof has a direct bearing on our relationship to God, on our relationship to other people, and even a relationship to our own soul. The vast majority of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. Let's just pause on that for a moment. The vast majority of us, according to Pete Scazzaro, go to our graves without knowing who we are. We unconsciously live someone else's life or at least someone else's expectations for us. This does violence to ourselves, to our relationship with God, and ultimately to others. We have to become aware of the good and the bad in our own soul, the places we're wounded, the places where we have not grown up and dealt with reality. So I think for a lot of us, and we hit on this last week when we were talking about anxiety and depression, a lot of us don't feel safe in the love of the Father, to like dive below the surface and actually wrestle wrestle with, go, with what's going on. And, and the beauty of following Jesus is that as you become more like him, you actually become more yourself. You don't become some sort of clone. You become more unique because your calling gets clarified. It's not like our culture, which says like everyone has to be unique, which creates a culture where everyone just buys into different versions of the same brand of uniqueness. Like when everyone is wearing and consuming brand unique, no one's unique. As a follower of Jesus, you become more your true self, more who God thought you up to be when we begin to uh, move deeper into our discipleship with Jesus. So today I wanna invite you to turn to Matthew 3, Matthew three 13. We're gonna start here. We've got a lot of ground to cover today. Thanks for being with us. Matthew 3.13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. He is named here. Before having done anything meaningful, any meaningful ministry, as far as we know, he has given his identity Now, we're going to come back to this in just a minute. So I want you to just kind of hold that phrase in your your mind. And let's keep going here. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, write that down. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So you see these seeds of doubt entering in right away. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Here it is again, if you Are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. This is like a a scripture battle between Jesus and, and the devil here. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, and here's the third one, if you will bow down and worship me which by the way is the exact opposite of Jesus's identity and calling. Jesus is tempted, not, not really even to sin here so much as it's a temptation to hand over his identity and hand over his calling and to settle. This is the great temptation. I wish I had more time. I would go into to John, the way he faces this temptation Paul faces this temptation. This is over and over in the scriptures. We face this day in and day out. If we're going to play the long game, we have to grapple with where we are being tempted to believe lesser things and faulty things about who we are. And if you're a follower of Jesus, let me remind you for a second that as we look to him, as we look to God in flesh, laying himself down, as we look to the cross and the resurrection, as we look to the God who's come after us, we read things like in John 1, 12, right? We read, but to, uh, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We read in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Galatians three twenty six, we read, for in Christ, you are all sons of God of God, there's the phrase again, through faith. And that list goes on and on and on and on. But let me pause. That's not the sermon I want to preach. Let's go back for a minute. When we read that the father says to Jesus, this is my son whom I love and him I am well pleased and we hear the temptation from the devil, son of God, son of God, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. We tend to read this solely as an announcement about Jesus's inner identity. This phrase, son of God, what's being announced over Jesus here, this phrase, son of God, was a moniker. It's all throughout scriptures. It's all, uh, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, which were the Bible of Jesus's day. We read that the son of God was first attributed to Israel. If you read the book of Exodus, Israel is actually the first son of God. Later, it's given to the Messiah. All the prophets uh, in the Hebrew scriptures kind of see into the future. They look over the horizon and they see this person who's yet to come, who is the Messiah, the king of the whole world. And they call him, this future person, the son of God. This passage here in Matthew 3, this statement from the father is a statement about his identity, but it's also a statement about his calling. Notice how these two things are joined at the hip. We're in a moment where our culture wants to talk, like all our culture wants to talk about, is what you do, what you have accomplished. How do you look? Are you saying the right things on social media? How much influence do you have? How are your abs looking? In the church, we tend to then have this overreaction to this. And I want to be really clear. I am guilty of this. On my, uh, my like, uh, description of my Twitter feed, uh, my Twitter handle, it literally says, I am not what I do. Human beings, right? That phrase, like we are human beings, not human de- doings the reality is, is you actually can't separate your being and your doing. What you do flows out of who you are. And what we don't talk enough about in the church um, is, is this symbiotic relationship. Jesus is called the Messiah, and that is tied to his calling to usher in the kingdom of God. The same is true for me. The same is true for you. Your identity, who you are and who you're not, is tied to your calling, what you're called to do and what you're not. So today, I want to spend the next hour or two, kidding, Pastor Joe, but really, that's actually what I want to do, to be totally honest like, with you. <laughs> like It's painful to cut down this next section of the talk. But I want to spend a few minutes talking about this. The thing that you don't hear a lot about in church, because I think maybe we're, uh, I don't know, we're scared that we might de-emphasize grace or something. Like How you get clarity on your calling can help you uncover more of who you are. Playing the long game means we have to keep discovering in every season who we are. And one way that we do that is by asking and drilling down, drilling down into what is my calling? And this invitation to calling is not a one and done thing. It keeps coming up again and again in microwaves and in macrowaves. So you ready? We're going to go on a little journey together. Luke 4. <laughs> Luke 4, if you turn to Luke 4. We're gonna hit a bunch of passages really quick here. Luke 4, verse 40. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them. It would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that's why I was sent. He was up all night. He's healing people. In the morning, got people saying, stay, stay. So like, you, you, you know someone has sent word to the next village. And at some point, to all of these really good and pressing and urgent needs, at some point, Jesus walks away. I always imagine there were like guilt trippers in the crowd. Like, I thought you loved me. Jesus says, I don't have to do it all. Maybe he says to you today, you don't have to do it all. How does he stare? This is the question that comes up for me when I read this passage. How does he stare this stuff in the face and then walk away? So in Luke 9, 51, there's a few passages here I want to read. Luke 9, 51, at the time, uh, as the time approached for him to be taken up in heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Uh, in Luke 13, 22, we read, And Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Luke 18, 31 Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of God will be fulfilled. Apparently, there is something the writer wants us to know. It says in Luke 19 28, After Jesus had said this, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. There's a lot more passages I want to go through to kind of make my point, and I've shared some of this previously but it's like a beat, right? It just keeps coming up and coming up and coming up. There's something driving Jesus. He has oriented everything around getting to Jerusalem. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you know why. Does this prevent or help me get to where I'm going appears to be one of Jesus's drivers. Like what he says yes to and what he says no to are dictated by his calling and by his mission. It doesn't prevent him along the way from being compassionate. It doesn't prevent him along the way from being spontaneous. He just always comes back to the focus. When it comes to his calling, there is this central thing his life is about. Every temptation and option and good and great thing gets like held up against the call. Same thing happens actually relationally. So let's explore this one for a second. Matthew 17. After six days, uh, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. Now, I'm not gonna, just for the sake of time, I'm not gonna read this whole story, but this is the transfiguration story if you wanna go back and read it. This is an epic moment in like biblical redemptive history. Huge event. Jesus takes three disciples. Why is this significant? Glad you asked. In Luke 10, he appoints 72. In Matthew 11, he appoints 12 disciples. After he, uh, res- he is resurrected, there are 120 followers. Jesus has got these like inner circles. And-, and here there are just three. He doesn't take 120. He doesn't take 72. He doesn't take 12. He takes for this epic, intimate, powerful moment, he takes three. Were the other nine like really, really disappointed? He seems to go deeper and deeper as you follow the journey of Jesus with fewer and fewer. So a couple questions in regards to relationships here. How many go the distance relationships can you handle? How many uh, can you actually stay connected to? Can you stay connected to the 72? Jesus had his three. How much guilt do you have because you can't keep up with so-and-so? I think our experience in the modern world seems to be that like we go shallower and shallower with more and more people. I think this is what technology and the algorithms are actually feeding on. How many intimate go-the-distance relationships can we actually have with Jesus? Like we see he can handle this. Right? We don't have Jesus like texting apologies to people. I'm sorry I couldn't make it. He lives with this. Kind of a supernatural, unreal sense of boundaries and a focus. Stay with me. Turn me in John 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sikar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. So Jesus is tired. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Now, it seems like a really random detail, but not only is he tired, like he's not with the people that he traveled with. He's been traveling with them nonstop and he just stops. He's tired. They keep going. Like, what are they talking about as they go? Like, Jesus is not carrying in his weight. He can do exorcisms, but he can't get a sandwich. Like, Jesus seems okay with stopping. He isn't worried. Jesus, who came to serve, the scriptures tell us, had no problems, no problem at all, letting other people serve him. No issue in being weak or appearing weak and exhausted. The others who made the exact same journey he did went on ahead. So, he says no to urgent things while staying attentive. Relationally, he's got his few, who he's tight with. And then when he's exhausted, he says it and he owns it. He can't do it all and he's okay with that. John 5, 19. Land this here. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he does. We looked at this the other week, right? He's so connected with God, he's one. And he's finding there the uniqueness of his call by being more and more submitted and connected to God, not less. Divine guidance and mission, identity and call come upon him. He stays true. He can say, The Father has not given me that to do, or, or that to do. All I can do is stay true, he says, to what the Father has shown me. How liberating does that feel? What would it be like to live like this? Like a deep, deep sense of what to say no to and what to say yes to. How might that shape our identity? So let's explore this practically for a minute. Uh, Kierkegaard, a writer who I just love, existentialist, he, he writes, a saint. And by that, he simply means someone who just does great things for the Lord, someone connected with God. That's someone who can will the one thing. Write that phrase down if you're taking notes. Will the one thing. When we don't will the one thing, with no Jerusalem, our energy goes everywhere, the ones that are the most effective in joining God in the renewal of all things and joining God and changing the world are more attuned to who they are and what they're called to. Now, there may be a couple of, of one things, to be clear, like a few friends, your spouse, your children, something in your work. But, but what, what, what is so difficult for us is that we just love our options, And we fail to see that every choice that we have is also a renunciation. And what I mean is, when we choose this, we are saying no to something else. Which is why, by the way, commitment is terrifying. Our culture worships choice. Our culture worships options. I want to be free, it says. But we can be so free in that worldly sense that we're actually in bondage. Jesus chooses Jerusalem. Jesus chooses his calling. And he is over and over and over in the scriptures renouncing other things. He is awake and alive to the purposes that God has spoken over him. Oftentimes to pursue the way of Jesus, friends, is to say no to really good things because you've said yes to a few things. We don't find Jesus distracted. We don't find him rushed. We don't find him late. We don't find him worried. His heart can break for things. He weeps, he's awake, but he's focused. He knows his call and his identity. These two things joined at the hip. The question for you today, does Jesus need to give you permission to do anything or to not do something? Does he need to give you permission to not do it all? Are there relationships right now you can't do? You don't find Jesus living with guilt like this is this is what I I know it's no I have to do. Does Jesus need to give you permission to not have to do everything and keep everyone happy? I want to right now desperately. I want to give like a whole other talk, like in this moment on differentiation and enmeshment, the way we lose ourselves and other people. But remember, like lots of people are disappointed with Jesus because Jesus says no a lot. What is your life about? How could answering that question in this season help you? Even if you have some clarity on that, to continue to go back and tighten that focus up in the power and leading of the spirit, to become more focused. Do you know what God has spoken over you? What does it mean for you to will the one thing? Do your choices drive you to the one thing in your life? Who or what is suffering in your life because you're busy doing a lot of good things, but not the best. I don't remember who said it, but it was the, the good is the enemy actually of the best. There's a few things, and I, I want to share a little bit more when we conclude our service and Zoom in just a moment, but a few things that I want to draw your attention to. One is uh, in the coming month, we're going to do something called a calling lab, something that our friends at Underground Tampa Underground have put together, and so I want to invite you. There's going to be a place for you to sign up for that if you're interested in that, and this is not just, again, for like, I don't know, the 23-year-old about to leave like university or something or someone just leaving college. Like, this is for anyone and everyone. Going through that, even in my own um, uh, confidence and rootedness in my job has helped me reclarify within my call of being a pastor, what I'm supposed to give my attention to. This is, I'll share a bit more about this in a moment, but I want to encourage you to sign up for the calling lab. Two uh, is uh, our path uh, rule of life. So we try regularly, every season, and we want to get back on this rhythm, is to ha- get all of our everybody who's involved, everybody who's all in in our church uh, to put together a rule of life. What are the practices that are gonna help you lean into who you are and who you're called to be? Uh, And so you can go to ourpath.church or just go to our website and you can find all the resources there. We're gonna have a rule of life or a path workshop coming up in the next month and a place to sign up for that. And then lastly, uh, for all the parents out there, like many of us are one thing right now in this season or one of our one things is uh, asking, how do I better disciple my children? And so uh, Sarah has put together, uh, some of you have done this before, uh, this first path workshop of helping uh, parents um, step into that divine calling of helping disciple their kids. So there's gonna be a place to sign up for that as well. We cannot, we cannot separate our being and our doing. And when I say that, I don't mean that you shouldn't separate them. What I mean is that you literally can't. What you do flows out of who you are and what we just don't talk about enough about is that that goes the other way. We have to pay attention to the relationship between these two things, just like Jesus and John and Paul. Who you are and who you're not is directly tied to your ultimate calling in Christ, what you're called to do and what you're not. So I pray that as we come to the Lord's table, as we come now to take the bread and as we come now to take the cup, that we would um, experience refreshment. We would experience the, like, the refreshing love of the Father, those words spoken over each one of us. This is my daughter and my son who I love. And in that place of like safety and in that safe place of security, we would be able to be vulnerable and open to explore and discover in a deeper way who we are to be in this season. I look forward to seeing you in just a moment.